integral part of the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is alive. A, a dead Savior cannot save anyone. And so the hinge of the door in which our salvation swings is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Welcome to Refuge Podcast, a weekly Bible study for young adults at Calvary Chapel, San Juan Capistrano. Corinthians 15. It says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight, and God, we do pray that you would speak to us in the power of the Holy Spirit. We're thankful, Lord, that you dwell in us, Lord, that you um, you dwell upon the praises of your people. And so, God, we, are, uh, we want to be very aware tonight that you're here in this room. And we're so thankful, God, that you draw near to us as we draw near to you. Lord Jesus, we pray that you'd minister to the needs of, of those here. God, those that are struggling, that need a word from you, a touch from you, God, would you speak to them um, through your word tonight? Would you meet the needs, God, that, that are represented here? God, would you heal and begin to restore? God, would you encourage and strengthen and exhort um, through the teaching of your word tonight? We love you, Lord. We thank you for the cross. We thank you, God, for the fact that we can come to you this way because of what Jesus has done upon the cross. And so, Lord, we're thankful and we're grateful. Lord, may our hearts over, overwhelm and be overwhelmed with joy because of what you've done for us tonight. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, as we begun this study, we began with the theme of together. Uh, and not, you know, the high school musical version, but um, with this theme because, and hopefully you've seen that, the church is not immune from division and conflict. Um, some of you have come from churches where there was conflict or there was division, and you're like, man, my, my church context is pretty jacked up, and so I'm I'm nervous to come into the church and, and whatever. And, and I just want to say that no church is perfect. There's not a church in this, on this earth that is perfect. And we, we talked about that a few weeks ago because you're here. <laughs> and I'm here. And we're a part of the church. We're, we're what makes up the church. And so there's no such thing as a perfect church. And that's why Paul writes this letter in order for us to understand that may we strive for unity. May we understand that each of us plays a unique role and part in the body of Christ, that um, we're all uh, important to it. And, and here's the thing, this gathering in Corinth of individuals of different backgrounds, genders, nationalities was bound to bring about conflict. It's bound to happen, right? If you have a colorful family and you have lots of brothers and sisters or, or whatever, even if you're an only child, the, we have conflicts within our families. I think most people are like, oh, my family, right? It's like you would not believe Uncle Bradley or whatever. And we have different issues within our families all the time. The Bible describes the church as the family of God. And so we're bound to have problems, issues, but the Bible gives us ways to work through that, things that, we're ought, that we ought to do in order to strive to walk in unity and to be one. That we're all the body, we're all one body connected by Christ. That he takes on, uh, Paul talk, takes on the, the tough issues of sin, 
uh, that was going on in this church, but also clearing up disputes and answering their questions about how to live according to their newfound faith. And so in Corinth, it was a Greek city, and the Greeks did not believe in the resurrection. And so some of that idea had crept into the church. And so chapter 15, Paul's going to face that problem. He's going to talk about how this life, this physical life, is not the end of life. That all of us have eternity within us. And, um, and so he's going to make that point throughout the text. In Acts chapter 17, Paul's preaching in Athens and it tells us that he was actually laughed at when he began to preach on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Like people laugh, just like, people aren't raised from the dead. Like, that's it. When you're gone, you're gone. Like, and listen, that, it's interesting to think that ancient people, I think a lot of times we think ancient people are, very, are so far removed from what we deal with. And like, back at this time, like they were riding donkeys and whatever. And listen, human beings have acted like human beings since the beginning of human beings. Like, this is, it's nothing new under the sun. What, what we're talking about tonight is exactly what our culture believes as well. Like, the culture in the West is that this is it. Um, Zach had to inform me on who wrote, who penned these words, but I think it was Drake. Like, YOLO. Like, you only live once. Like, that's it. Like, this is it. But, and so that ideology has permeated into our culture as well. They're like, there is no God. We've come from ooze to the zoo to you. There's really no destiny after this. There's no eternity in any of us. Like, this is it. And so get what you can now. Strive for the best now. What no one else matters. Step on what you can to get yours in order that you can live your best life now. Right? Would you say that that's, like, that's what sums up our culture? We'll do anything to get to that level, to where we're the center of it, the center of our own universe. And so, listen, the same thing's happening here in our text that's happening in our culture. There's very much a, an understanding or, or a thought process that this is it. And so Paul's going to write to the church and help them to understand that this is not the end. That beyond this life, at the last breath that you take, that I take, only then enters us into an eternal state forever. And there's one of two places that you can spend that eternity. So it's a heavy text. There's 58 verses. Are you ready? No, you're not. Here we go. The apostle doesn't back down from this one because the truth of the resurrection has practical and doctrinal implications. So we're going to look at four basic questions. Number one, are the dead raised? Number two, when are the dead raised? Number three, why are the dead raised? And if we have enough time, number four, how are the dead raised? We're going to try and get there. So number one, verses 1 through 19 cover this topic. Are the dead raised? Is there a resurrection after this life? And the Apostle Paul is going to begin to bring proofs to the table. Verses 1 through 2, he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul brings the first proof to the table, and he says, The proof of the resurrection is, number one, your salvation. He's going to just put it in, in plain terms. The fact that you are saved, the fact that your life has been transformed by the gospel is proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and proof that there's resurrection that is to come to all of us. And an internal part, an integral part of the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is alive. 
A dead Savior cannot save anyone. And so the hinge of the door in which our salvation swings is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus is not alive, then all of us are doomed. Like, that's it. Like, all the praise songs that we sing should just be this minor key downer of, like, we're all doomed. It's over. There's no hope for any of us. Right? If Jesus is not alive, that is the song that we would sing. They, they had received the word from the Apostle Paul. They believed in Christ. They were saved. And now they stand in the assurance of their salvation. And the Apostle Paul says that right there is proof that Jesus is alive. He then turns their attention to the Old Testament in verse 3. He says, For I have delivered to you, first of all, that, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and then he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, when he refers to the Scriptures, what is he talking about? This is our Scriptures. This is 1 Corinthians. Their Bible is the Old Testament. They're looking at the Old Testament. So Paul's saying, I'm referring back to what was preached to you through the scriptures, which the Old Testament points to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The phrase, first of all, that he uses is, it means of first importance. The gospel is the most important message the church ever proclaims. That is the most important message that the church ever proclaims. More important than any social action that we call each other to, that we may carry out. No ministry should ever usurp the authority and the place of the proclamation of the gospel. Because that is why we are still here. You ever wonder, like, God, why, why not when I get saved, just take me to heaven? Like, that would be so much easier. Because God's not done with you. There's a reason that God has given life into your mortal, into your body. He's raised you to new life by your own soul. Like you are a new creation in Christ. And you are a vessel carrying the very, the most beautiful message in the world. That is the gospel. And hopefully it spills out as we share it with others. Like this is the most important thing that we as the church would do. We're not, the church does not exist. So that you have something to do on Thursday night. The church does not exist so that, like, we could have free hammers, like, on hymn nights or whatever. The church does not exist for any other reason other than the proclamation of the gospel to sinners that Christ died for them and rose to life to give them eternal life. That is the main mission. That is the main goal. That is the purpose. It is the center of why the church exists. It is not to give us friends. Like, when we talk about community, that is a byproduct of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The center of the church is not a community. The center of the church is the cross of Jesus. And everything else flows from that point on. We have to get off of the gateway drug of community that brings people in. Listen, what draws people to God is God. What draws people to Jesus is the blood of Christ, the love of God for them, not friend groups. Like that has to be our mission. That has to be our goal. That has to be what we preach because eventually those friend groups fail us. Like any of you have relationship problems and and friend issues and like, you know, fights and whatever. Like I don't, I have that stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Like we all have that stuff. Like the church is the church. We offend each other. 
We get in each other, like we get in each other's business where we shouldn't be. We insert ourselves where Jesus should be, and we're like, hey, I got this. I'm gonna save your soul right now. Just listen to all of my wisdom that I've learned in the last 19 years of life. Like, like listen. And, and we lead people, to, like, we make mistakes. And that's what Paul's writing to. We all make mistakes. The body of Christ is broken and it gets messed up. But it's thankfully, at the center of it all is Jesus Christ, alive. Like, that's the center of it. And not to, like, yeah, I'm going to stop. Here we go. So the Old Testament, the phrase, first of all, is the first importance in all of that. These are the basic historical facts that he lists right here. Christ died, he was buried, and he rose from the dead, and finally he was seen. These are the basic historical facts on which the gospel stands. The theological fact is Christ died for our sins. Like, that's important. Lots of people were crucified by the Romans. Like, tons of people were crucified in, in those days. In fact, the Romans got so good at it because they had crucified so many people that they were experts at it. Like, that's how you get good at something. It's pretty jacked up. Like, that's, that's what they did. They invented this way of execution that they had become experts in. Thousands of people had died by crucifixion. But only one died for your sins. Only one died upon a cross for the sins of the world. And Paul points us back to the Old Testament. He talks about the sacrificial systems. He takes us to the book of Leviticus. He takes us all over the place of the Old Testament because it was a picture of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He takes us to the Day of Atonement of Yom Kippur where, where the priest would enter in the holy place to make sacrifice for the sins of the people. He takes us back to the Old Testament like passages in Isaiah 53. Jesus himself pointed us to Jonah. Like, they said, what sign will you give us? And Jesus said, the sign that will be given to you is the sign of Jonah. That he was swallowed for three days and then came back. That's how you will know that I am who I say that I am. Jesus pointed us back to the Old Testament. Psalm 16, verse 8, says, I know the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad and I rejoice. My body rests in safety, for you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. Prophecy of a further, later, future resurrection. So not only does he point us to the Old Testament, in verses 5 through 11, he was seen. Look what it says in verse 5, if I can find it myself. There it is. And that he was seen by Cephas, also known as Peter, then by the twelve. So there's, there's the apostles there, Cephas, and then the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. The fact that 500 people, it wasn't just Cephas, it wasn't just the twelve, 500 people witness Jesus alive at the same time. Which means that that could not be a mass hallucination. Right? 500 people all seeing the same thing. No, there's no way that could be a mass hallucination or a deception. But one of the greatest eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus, of Jesus Christ was Paul himself. 
Paul himself, look what he says later on in the text. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, of by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and the grace and grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. I don't even have to comment. We're just going to move on. Like, come on. He says one of the greatest witnesses, not only to the fact that Jesus was alive, was, was the 500, the 12, Peter himself, James. And he says, but, but I have seen him myself. Saul of Tarsus, who was killing and persecuting Christians, who on his very breath was breathing murderous threats against the church. There was no greater enemy. Uh, J. Vernon McGee said there was no greater enemy to the name of Jesus Christ than Saul of Tarsus. Saul becomes Paul. It becomes one of the greatest, I mean, a third of the New Testament is written by this guy. He pioneered the modern day missions like Trip. He, he, he was the guy who invented church planting. Like, no big deal. Like, this was the guy who, who for three years was ministered to by Jesus himself. Like, Paul says, I'm a, I'm a testimony not only to the power of God, but to the grace of God in my life. And I love that he starts with that. I was the one who was murdering people. I was the one who killed people. I don't know where you are in your walk with Jesus tonight. But if Saul of Tarsus can be saved and be forgiven of his sin, I think you can too. And his life stands as a testimony to that. The radical change in his life brought, it, brought to him persecution. It brought him prison time. And it brought him pain. But Paul uses it as an evidence of, of the fact that he saw Jesus alive. Perhaps the Corinthians are now at this point saying, like, okay, okay, we believe that Jesus is alive. And Paul would say, if you believe that, then you must believe in the resurrection of all from the dead. Christ came as a man truly human, and experience all that we experience, except that he never sinned. If there is no resurrection, then Christ is not raised. If he is not raised, there is no gospel to preach. And if there is no gospel, then we are still in our sins. And if we are still alive in our sins, then those who have died have no hope. We will never see them again. Paul says the resurrection is not just important, but it is of first importance because all that we believe hinges on it. And your life transformed by the gospel is evidence that Jesus lives. My life transformed by the gospel is an evidence that Jesus lives. In verses 20 through 28, as we move through it, it says here, now, number two, point number two, when are the dead raised? Like, when does that happen? So that was, um, oh man, is there like a big chunk missing? No, we're cool. The Apostle Paul is going to use three images, okay? He says, now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, now do some, do, do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. This is the point I was making, okay? And if Christ is not risen, then your preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. He's like, it means nothing. Like if Christ isn't alive, this means nothing. 
There's, this is pointless. Like, tons of people died. Tons of people were crucified. Only one raised from the dead. And on him hinges all things. Like, if he's not alive, then what we're doing is pointless. He says in verse 16, For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all men most pitiable. He says, if there is no resurrection, then the world should feel sorry for us. We're an embarrassment. Like all this pain, all this suffering that I've gone through is for nothing if Christ is not alive. Which I think is evidence that Jesus lives. I don't think the, the amount of pain and suffering that Paul would go through, he would go through for a lie. At some point, I don't know about you, but like if you're lying and you're you're experiencing pain and suffering because of it, at some point, don't you think you're like, I give up. Like, I'm lying. Yeah, here's the truth, you know? As, as these guys, like, if you, you look at Fox's Book of Martyrs, you look at just the apostles themselves, the, ways that, the way that they were martyred. I mean, Peter was crucified upside down. You think if he was lying, he would have been at some point like, okay, stop. I'm lying. This is a joke. Let me go. Um, you know, at any point, like if, you th if they were dying for a lie, I'm like, how? I mean, this is evidence of the fact that Jesus is alive. I mean, James, I think James himself was drugged through the city by horses until he was dead. Like, this is the kind of stuff they went through. And if it was for a lie, like how, how pitiable that is. And that's what Paul's making the point. Like, if, if this life only, we have hope in Christ, and we're all men most, most pitiable. Now, the second point. Sorry. Verse 20. It says, But now Christ is risen from the dead, and has come, and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterwards those who are Christ's at his coming. So when are the dead raised? The Apostle Paul is going to use three images to answer that question. The first one is firstfruits. Paul refers to or references the Feast of Firstfruits, which is found in the book of Leviticus, chapter 23. This is a feast that the nation of Israel was um, obligated to keep by the Lord. It says in verse 9 of, of Leviticus 23, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, reap into harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath... The priest shall wave it, and on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, a year old, without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord, and so on and so forth, grain offerings, and then there's a lot of offerings, okay? Now, the book, the book of Leviticus is not on um, my top ten reading uh, of, of the year. Like, I can't wait to get to that point. But the point of Leviticus is this. God is holy, okay? God is holy, and there's a lot of blood because God is holy. Because sin is bad, there's a lot of blood. And because God is holy, you got to approach God the way that he wants to be approached, right? Like when you come to the Lord, you have to come in the way that he, he wants you to come. And the same thing in, in this way of the first fruits, in that they were celebrating this when they entered into the land. 
So they, they were given this promise that this is something they were to do when they entered the land. They hadn't entered the land yet when they got this. And they were to do this on the day after the Sabbath. It was to present God with the best of the harvest. As the Lamb of God, Jesus died on Passover. As the sheaf of the first fruits, he rose from the dead three days later on the first day of the week when the priest waved the sheaf of the first fruits. Jesus raised from the dead on the day of the feast of first fruits. Died on Passover, rose again from the grave on the day of first fruits. Coincidence? I think not. Do you think that God has been preaching to us salvation by Jesus Christ through the nation of Israel, through the Old Testament? I believe so. And so Jesus rose again from the grave as an offering or, or something that was um, accepted by the Lord. When Jesus was raised from the dead, it was God's assurance to us that, we, listen, we shall also be raised on the day as part of that future harvest. To believe that death is only sleep, the body sleeps, but it should it is at home, or the body is. Um, but, but, man, what, what was I typing Hold on a second. Let's go back a second here. When he compares it to the first fruits of, of that from the dead, the, the feast of the first fruits was you were bringing that first bundle to the Lord. A sheaf is just a bound piece, like bound up wheat. You would bring that before the Lord. It was to be the best, spotless, perfect. It wasn't like the crumbs that you didn't want to eat. It was the best of it. Jesus represents that first fruits, the best, offered to the Lord and accepted by God. And then as the priest would wave over that, it was the acceptance of the fact that all of it then belongs to the Lord, given to them by God. This is something they were to do always, to remember that. And to believe to the believer, death is only sleep. Look what he says later. Then comes, or look up. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. He then draws a contrast between Adam and Jesus. In 2 Corinthians verse five, verses one, or chapter 5, verses 1 through 8, it says, For we know that in the tent, that is, our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. He talks about how this body is compared to a tent. Like this is breaking down. A couple days ago I threw out my back. It's falling apart. Um, I can't even see the words in my giant print Bible. And I'm only 35. Like, things are going downhill rapidly. Diabetes is looming in my future. Like, <laughs> just kidding. But here we are, okay? Paul's comparing the body to a tent. And it's breaking down ultimately to give us a building, something more permanent that's lasting. If you're always living in a tent, that's called being Homeless, right, very good. But when you have a home, a building, a structure, you have a home. Paul says our body is breaking down because sin is breaking it down. Death is ultimately because of sin. It breaks the body down, ultimately pointing us to the future when we'll have a new body raised in Christ waiting for us in heaven. He says, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked for while we are still in this tent, we groan. Yes, we do. Being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, not with more, uh, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us his spirit as a guarantee. So we're always of good courage. 
We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and be at home with the Lord. At the resurrection, the body will be awakened and will be glorified. He begins to talk about Adam here in verses 21 and 22. He says, for since by man came death, by man, capital M, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Now, Adam was made from the earth, right? He's drawing this contrast. Adam's made from the earth. Jesus came from heaven. Adam disobeyed God. Sin and death entered the world. Jesus obeys the Father unto death, and it brought righteousness and life. Paul presents two spheres of existence. One in Adam and one in Christ. There is no third sphere. Like, either you are alive once in Adam and will die twice, physically and spiritually, or you will be born once, or you will born, sorry, you'll be born twice and you will die once. Maybe not even that. This is the point here. There's two spheres of which you can exist. There is no third sphere. There is no, there is no, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's been a long week. Neutral. There is no neutral ground when it comes to Jesus. Thank you, people who said nothing. There is no neutral ground. Like, there's no Switzerland in this whole thing. Like, like we're not getting involved. Listen, if you're born of Adam, you're in the sphere of Adam. If you're born of Christ spiritually, meaning that you've given your life to Jesus, you you believe in him as Lord and Savior, then you have a new birth brought into the sphere of Christ. Jesus came to not just repair the system, but to recreate the system. If I'm cooking chili up here, and here I am, like, just enjoying myself, like a live cooking show, which is like my dream. It sounds amazing. Where I'm like, paprika, and you're like, ha ha. I'm like, bam. (laughs) Um, And I'm cooking up here, and I sneeze, like hardcore man sneeze, into the middle of this chili. Just like, oh, you know what I'm talking about. Those people who like, their whole body, like, bro, and you're like, wow. Or those people, it's so funny to watch people sneeze, they're like, yeah, yeah, or some sneeze in like sevens, some sneeze in fives, you're like, what is that? We should do a study on sneezing. Um, let's say I man sneeze into this bowl of chili and I'm like, oh, I can see it. It's right. The only area that's been affected is this area right here. And I just start dishing it up for you. And right now, infection is not really a topic that we like to talk about. Um, and I start, you know, hey, 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 you get a bowl, you get a bowl, you get a bowl, you get a car. Hey, what's happened? That whole system has been ruined, hasn't it? You can't just like take one little thing out. Same thing with sin. God created a system. Sin entered that system and affected everything in that system. Everything. All the way down to a cellular genome level. Sin has brought devastation to that system. Christ came, listen, not to rebuild that system but to completely recreate a new system. Christ enters and recreates it. And that's what he does in you and I. Affected by sin, 
brought about death, not only physically, but it will bring about death spiritually one day. Christ enters into our life and recreates us from the inside out. He gives us a new purpose, a new mission, a new destiny. Where we were destined for hell, Christ comes and repairs and rebuilds and restores and sends us on our way to glory with him forever. There's a new system that we're a part of. John chapter 3, Jesus speaking with Nicodemus said to him, you must be born again. Like you, This is what has to happen. He's not talking about a physical birth, but a spiritual rebirth. If you were simply born of water, you will experience two deaths. But born a second time spiritually, is only, you only have the chance to die once. Maybe not even that. Christ is returning. But what is the sequence of this resurrection? Now stick with me. This is the part where it gets weird. Not weird, but just hard. And some of you are already fading super fast. So just shake it out. It's, I'm not, you know, no condemnation. I wouldn't last in this Bible study either. So just shake it out, shake it out. Roll the shoulders if you need to. Crack a little, whatever you got to do. Now, stick with me. What is the sequence of resurrection? So we're talking about when does this happen? When do we get this new glorified body? Like when is the resurrection going to happen? John chapter 5, verses 25 through 29, Revelation 20, indicate that there isn't like a just general resurrection. There's a specific order. Because God is a specific God. When Jesus returns in the air, he will take his church to heaven and at that time erase the form of dead all who have trusted him and have died in the faith. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, it says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Now, there's a lot of different debates. People are like, this happens, this happens. Listen, I don't care. I just want to go to heaven. Okay? The point of the text is this. You don't want to miss the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Like, you don't want to miss the resurrection that's going to come. Like, you, you don't want to be left behind in that sense. Jesus called it the resurrection of life in John chapter 5. And when Jesus returns to the earth in judgment, the lost will be raised in the resurrection of damnation in John 5, 29. Also, Revelation 20, 11 through 15. If you want these verses, I can give them to you later. Just let me know. I know I'm rattling off a lot of stuff. Nobody, listen, this is the most important thing. Nobody in the first resurrection will be lost. And no one in the second resurrection will be saved. That's the most important thing. And listen, Paul's not saying this in order for us to like, be scared or nervous, but to give us the reality of the fact that Jesus is coming. Don't mess around. Like, don't mess around. You've been given so, and I'm going to just speak for myself, I've been given so much grace Paul says, I've been given so much grace. I'm not going to mess around with the grace of God. I'm not going to tempt the Lord. I'm not going to walk one side of the fence or the other. I'm not going to have one foot in the world and one foot, one foot in the Lord. Like, I'm either all in or I'm not. 
Either you're in the sphere of Adam or you're in the sphere of the Lord. Like you're living in that. Paul says, don't mess around. The kingdom is also part of that proof that he's, he's talking about, this, this specific order. Now we move into the kingdom of God in verse 24. Then comes the end. And when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he, he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy, listen, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him that God may be all in all. And everyone said, what in the world? Amen. Yeah, that's what I did. Amen. Amen. <laughs> what is he talking about? When Jesus comes to the earth, to judge, he will banish sin. And we all said? Amen. There we go. And the devil. And we all said? Amen. For a thousand years. We also know this time as the millennial reign of Christ. Then, after the millennium, one final rebellion will happen and the devil will be released. Ask me why. I have no idea. <laughs> this is one of those verses where you're like, why? 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 And this is where we just like, God is God and I'm not. So it says what it says. Why would the devil be released? I have no clue. And I am totally comfortable saying that. Because no one else does either. Everyone who says, they're like, I know why. Shut up. No, you don't. None of us do. Because none of us have been there and none of us have seen it. So we can theorize all day. But why? I don't know. But the Bible says that it happens. I shouldn't say shut up. But here's the main point. When the devil is destroyed, or when the devil is released, Jesus will destroy him and death by his power, and the lost will be raised, judged, and cast in the lake of fire. Then death itself will be cast into hell in the lake of fire, and it will be destroyed, our last enemy destroyed. You can give it a little amen if you want. Come on. That's like good stuff. That's really good stuff. Then death itself will be cast in the lake of fire and the last enemy will be destroyed. Jesus will have put all things under his feet, meaning all authority, and he will hand over the kingdom to the Father and will usher in the eternal state, the new heaven, the new earth, Revelation 21, 22, the very water, living water pouring out from the throne of God. Read it tonight before you go to bed and try and sleep because you'll be that pumped. That's what's going to happen. How? I don't know. It's going to be crazy. I just want to be there, right? Like, that's the main emphasis here. If you don't know Jesus, this is a different alternative to you than this, than we're talking about. You will taste death twice. But thank God. Like, come on. Thank God who has provided a way of escape from hell. By his grace, not that you deserve it or earn it, not you showed up and God's like, yep, that guy's going to get grace because he is awesome. Because God is a giving, gracious, blessing God who has had mercy and pity upon us. Come on. Like if that doesn't get you out of bed in the morning to give God praise and thanks, nothing will. I don't care how cool your car is or what kind of Nikes you just bought. It doesn't matter. 
all of it's going to burn with a fervent heat. Or whatever new balances you got. Or whatever comfy shoe you may delight in. But why are the dead raised? Verse 29. It says, Otherwise, what will they need? What will they do who are baptized for the dead? The dead do not rise at all. Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do you stand in jeopardy every hour? Why do I affirm? Okay, here's the thing that happens here. If there is only this life, Paul is saying, then why do you baptize people with proxy? Meaning that you're baptizing living people for dead people. Now, the Bible does not teach that this is something that we ought to do. The Mormon church actually does this on a regular, that young people will come and they'll be baptized for someone who has died in the past in order to get them from this holding tank of hell into heaven or from the lower part of heaven into another heaven. It's completely um, false, to, quite, uh, to quote Dwight Schrute. It's completely false. The Bible does not teach that. Paul here is not saying that we should do this. He's saying if you don't believe in the resurrection, then why are you doing this? Like, why are you baptizing people for the dead? Um, this is, the Bible's not saying that we should do this. But what Paul is saying here is that if the resurrection is not true, if we're not raised from the dead, then this life, it doesn't matter how we live, does it? Like, what? doesn't matter if you're good. doesn't matter if you're bad. doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because there's nothing after this is the point he's making. Like, if, if there's no resurrection here, then why do we care how we live? Who cares about being loving? Who cares about being gracious? Who cares about doing all these things that the Bible teaches us if the resurrection is not real? But that's the point. The resurrection is true. And Jesus is coming again. So that affects our lives, and he gives four specific things that affect our life. Are you guys okay? You going to be all right? Is this making sense? You don't answer that. Here we go. It affects our life. How does it affect our life? Verse 29 tells us, otherwise, why then are they baptized for the dead, and why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of, of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. He says to them, if you know Jesus and you know he's coming back, then why are you living the way that you're living? Like that's in your face, Corinthians like, I don't really care. This is Paul just saying, I don't care how you feel. This is awesome. I don't care how this makes you feel. I care about your holiness. I care about your walk with Jesus. So if you're saying, like, it doesn't matter. I can eat. I can drink. I can, hey, tomorrow I'm going to die. It doesn't matter. He says, it affects the way that you live if you do not believe in a resurrection. And he says, the resurrection is true. Jesus is coming. I'm a witness to it. He says, awake oh, up. Or, or he says, wake up and shape up, basically. Like, wake up and shape up, church. You're hanging out with people that, that you shouldn't be hanging out with? Two words. Stop it. <laughs> Don't mess around with the grace of God. And in the most lo it's one of the most loving things that Paul could possibly say to this church is, guys, you're going in the wrong direction. Like you're heading towards destruction. Like stop. Turn back. Like, that's a loving thing to do. And, and that's what Paul is saying. I'm saying this to your shame. You're not doing this. That's why I'm awake. 
Wake up. Shape up. Look at what's going on around you. Like Jesus is coming. Stop messing around. There was a story of a girl walking through a forest, and it was a cold day, and she came upon a snake. Terrifying snake. And this rattlesnake starts talking to her. I know. And as the snake starts talking to her, he's like, please, I'm so cold. Could you please just pick me up and put, you, put me in your jacket for a minute so I can warm up? Like, I'm going to die out here unless I get some warmth. And she's like, no way. Like, you're a snake. You're going to bite me. And he says, I promise. I promise. Promise. On snake's honor or whatever. I promise. Like, I'm not going to. That was a horrible joke. I am not going to bite you. With all that is in me, all of my snake membrane, I will not bite you. And after reasoning with this snake for a few moments, she says, okay, you promise not to bite me. I'll, I'll put you inside my jacket. No sooner that she picks up the snake, puts him in her jacket, she feels the fangs sink into her hand. And she throws the snake down. She's like, you promised. You promised me you wouldn't bite me. You lied to me. And the snake says to her, you knew what I was when you picked me up. So often, that's how we treat sin. We treat it with this initial, like, no way, I'm not going there. But after reasoning with it for a moment, rationalizing it in our mind, letting it have a place in our thoughts, we then decide to pick it up. And when it bites us, and when it brings about death and destruction in our life, we shake it off and go, God, how could you allow this to happen? And God says, you knew what it was when you picked it up. Like, you knew what it was. And thankfully, we have forgiveness in Christ. The worst thing you can do is go on being bit by sin and like dying with just this poison writhing through your body and not coming to the Savior who has the anecdote. Sin affects our lives in so many ways. And so he says it affects the fact that we are called to evangelize. Um, if you don't believe in the resurrection, then why baptize people for the dead? The reality of this should motivate us to tell others that they'll stand before God. And this is not the end, Right? but also in suffering. Verse 30, he talks about how he stands, he dies daily. Not a death of self, but the reality that he faces death every day. Like Paul was chased. Paul was um, threatened. Um, he was imprisoned. And he's saying, like, the reason I do this is not because I like it. It's because, like, I, I have to tell people about Jesus. Paul was, was constantly being threatened with death, and many times he came close. So why endure suffering and danger and death if it ends, like if death just ends it all? God deals with the whole body, not just the soul. Romans 8 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in, to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The suffering that we endure, the pain that we go through in this life, in the body, will result in glory at the resurrection, is the point. And we're going to stop here because there's like 70 more verses. And I'm tired, so you got to be tired. So, you know what? Hold on one second. Let's read the good stuff. Not that this is, there's not good stuff, but there's like a lot of really important. Verse 50. Look at verse 50. Like, what do you skip? It's so hard. Okay, here we go. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. <clears throat> the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my, bre my beloved brethren, we be, we be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. Our physical body cannot handle heaven. Like, it's too good. Your eyes will burn out of its socket if you were to see Jesus, like in this life. That's why we can't. So when Jesus returns, the bodies of the living believers will instantly be transformed to be like his body. And I'm sure it looks just like this one. We're going to get a new one. There's a new body that is able to withstand the glory of God in heaven. And the dead believers shall be raised with new glorified body. Our new body will not be subject to decay and to death. Now Freud, the founder of psychiatry, wrote, And finally there is the painful riddle of death, for which there is no remedy at all, and has yet to be found, nor probably will ever be. Christians have victory in death and over death. Because of the victory of Jesus Christ, in his own resurrection, Jesus said, Because I live, ye shall also live. Sin, death, and the law, they go together. The law reveals sin, and the wages of sin is death. Jesus bore our sins on the cross and also bore the curse of the law. In, it is through him that we have this victory, and we share the victory today. Verse, 20, verse 57, it literally translates, but thanks be to God who keeps on giving us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 58 is Paul's hymn of praise to the Lord, as well as his closing admonition to the church. Because of the assurance of Christ's victory over sin and death, we know that nothing we do for him will ever be wasted or lost. Therefore, we can be steadfast in our service, 
unmovable in suffering, abounding in ministry because we know that our labor is not in vain. Solomon, who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, that all this life is vanity because he took God out of the equation and said, I'm going to try and find the meaning of life without Jesus involved in it. And he says, all of it is vanity. It comes to nothing. Paul here writes that life without Christ uh, is vanity. But Paul sang a song of victory because he had Jesus. So life has purpose. Life has meaning. And death, it's got nothing on us. Paul said at one point, I'm torn. Like, I don't know, I want to be with you guys because I love you so much. Oh, man, but to die and go and be with the Lord. I don't know which one is better. For the Christian, death is not, it, it's not something we, you know, welcome. We're like, I can't wait. But it's not something we fear either. Because our hope is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because he lives, we too shall live. By faith. So, that's a lot of information. And you guys have been awesome. So we're going to end there. And let's pray. Lord, we are thankful. God, for your goodness and your mercy. Lord, for the power of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of salvation. That comes by your son. We thank you, Lord, that you have conquered both sin and death. And Lord, we're thankful for the confidence that we have in you. And so, Lord, we, we pray, God, as we worship you, as we sing to you, would you fill our hearts with praise and joy and, and just affection for you? God, if we've been messing around and just kind of treating your grace, um, treating it poorly. God, we pray we would take this time just to confess to you, get right with you. We're thankful, God, that we can even approach you because of Jesus Christ, because of the cross. We can come into your presence, Lord. It's such a wonderful gift. And so, Lord, we pray tonight, uh, if we're distant from you, God, bring us in close. If we've uh, lost our way and we feel lost, Lord, I pray that you bring us back to that sense of belonging in you and we're thankful for your word we're thankful that um, no matter what this world throws at us man, this is not the end for us if this is if this is heaven man we're being ripped off like we cannot wait to be in glory with you and until you come or take us home Lord, we pray that we would live according to your word to live in, a, in such a way that honors you and glorifies you and to bring, it brings others to the realization that God exists. And so, Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time. Uh, we ask, Lord, that by your spirit, you administer to our hearts. And, uh, we love you, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together.